From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. I think chefs have a position where they can lead, and we eat every day, and why not eat a little better? This week on the show, we talk about sustainable eating strategies for a warming planet, from reducing the amount of beef in a burger to increasing the amount of plants in our diet. Even some tips on growing plants at home and finding edible plants in the wild. All that, plus stories from Harvest Public Media and more, just ahead on Earth Eats. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Renee Reed is here with food and farming reports from Harvest Public Media. Hi, Renee. Hi, Kate. Rural communities will receive millions in broadband funding from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. But as Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine reports, providers might have to overcome some obstacles first. Agriculture Secretary Tom Bilsack announced $167 million in grants and loans will go to 12 states, including Oklahoma and Missouri, to expand broadband. But providers are having trouble getting the supplies they need. Shirley Bloomfield is the CEO of the National Rural Broadband Association. She says providers are waiting more than a year for fiber technology and have to stockpile. They're trying to find ways to create scope and scale because the other thing, to their credit, that the large fiber manufacturers will share is that they will give AT&T preference over small providers in these rural markets because they're smaller. Bloomfield says providers are having trouble getting up to 40% of their equipment, like routers. She encouraged Vilsack to change the timeline of the grant program so providers can get the supplies they need. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media. People who work outside, including farm workers, could lose out on income as climate change ramps up the number of excessive heat days across the country. A new study from the Union of Concerned Scientists shows that billions of income dollars are in jeopardy for Midwesterners who work outside. Rachel Licker is a senior climate scientist who helped put together the report. She says people of color are at disproportionate risk. We found that Black, African, American, Hispanic, and Latino people hold more than 40% of outdoor jobs, despite comprising less than one-third of the overall population in the United States, which suggests that these workers will disproportionately bear the brunt of these changes. She recommends the government impose heat safety standards to protect workers, specifically farm workers, who are among the most vulnerable to heat-related illness and death. Thanks to Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine and Dana Cronin for those reports. For Earth Eats, I'm Renee Reed. The Piedmont Picnic Project wants you to know your roots, both literally and figuratively. On their wild food excursions, the group teaches both regional history and local food skills. And sometimes, the reward for all that learning is a truly wild pizza party. Finding fresh local foods in late winter and early spring can be challenging, but a closer look at our backyards and walking paths reveals edible wild weeds everywhere. They can be pickled, added to smoothies, pesto, and tea, and used as toppings for pizza, pasta, and salads. 
All of these spring greens are little nutritional powerhouses right now because they're storing up so many nutrients right before they go to flower. Um, it's two so days after a rare February snowfall in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I'm standing with about 20 other people at Well-Fed Community Garden. Um, we are going to learn about some of the edible plants that grow all around us here in this mostly urban environment we live in, and we're going to um, combine it with a little uh, cultural and social and geographic and natural history and just kind of get really get closer to our food, get a deeper connection to where our food comes from and what we, where we eat. Elizabeth Weichel is a public historian, and along with self-described homesteader light Amanda Matson, she runs Piedmont Picnic Project. Their classes cover things like mixology, gardening, and fermentation, and are grounded in local history. As we walk, Elizabeth will share how major snowfalls impacted the state capital as it developed into an agricultural powerhouse, while Amanda will show us how to identify edible plants. We start off with safety and etiquette. The first rule is know thy plant, a skill one can develop with plant ID books, guides like Amanda or Elizabeth, or even phone apps or YouTube videos. Don't eat anything that you're unsure of what it is. Uh, make sure that you've positively identified any plant before you eat it. Uh, Amanda recommends getting permission from home and property owners to pick plants and to be mindful of how one forages them. We never want to over harvest plants from a particular area. And there are some plants that are actually um, at risk or endangered because people have overharvested them. Um, so we take off across a busy intersection, walking past a local high school and stopping to examine the grass by the parking lot. Amanda says common environmental hazards can include poison ivy, fire ants, pollutants near industrial zones, and railroad tracks that are heavily sprayed with herbicides. The grass is a polyculture, like we're seeing along here, right? There are a lot of different weeds growing. Then it's a probably a pretty good sign that they're not spraying, or at least haven't sprayed any time recently. So we spy our first plant, dock. This variety has fat leaves that curl like fried bacon. So there are several parts of dock that are edible. The leafy greens are one thing that you could eat. The best tasting ones are going to be the youngest leaves, and so those are the ones that are going to be the lightest, brightest green growing in the center of the plant. When you cook dock, it tastes kind of like a slightly lemony spinach, I would say. If you pull some of the outer, kind of more mature leaves, some of them will get, you know, this long, this wide. So you could even make something similar to a grape leaf wrap. We pick a few tall tubes of field garlic, also known as onion grass. It's hollow inside. Um, and then the other big thing is that smell. You get that um, very strong onion or garlicky smell um, kind of in your face. And they're one of our favorite pesto ingredients because you get this really kind of green, garlicky taste or smell. They make really good pickles. So you could pickle the whole bulb. I like to leave a little bit of stem on them. Um, and they're really cute in like a little wild martini, if you're into that kind of thing. As we head into the mouth of a greenway, we see a little clump of edible weeds, including hoary bittercress. This is one of my absolute favorite wild greens, and it tastes to me almost exactly like arugula. So I'm going to pass it around, and if you feel comfortable, go ahead and take off a leaf and taste it. Um, it's in the mustard family, um, so that's why you get that kind of peppery, spicy arugula taste from it. 
One of the easiest plants to identify is dandelion. My grandmother used to talk about um, how this time of year, right as spring was breaking, they would go into the fields and gather dandelion greens, bring them home, and kind of similar to collards, you would cook them with some sort of pork fat and some vinegar to try to cut that kind of bitter taste to it. And that was kind of- By the end of the half mile walk, we've also found chickweed, wild geranium, purple dead nettle, and henbit. <laughs> Is anybody going free? We head back to Well-Fed Garden, where we prepare pizzas with some special ingredients from Piedmont Picnic Project. Wild greens pesto, hen of the woods mushrooms, pickled pine tips, and muscadine marinara sauce. Tammy, one of the well-fed farmers, entertains us as we put our bespoke pizzas into the outdoor wood-fired oven. When we first moved in, it was Thanksgiving, and um, we were told you could cook a turkey in there. It takes four hours to heat up, but once it's heat, heated up, it'll be like two days and it stays this warm. Um, so we took the um, turkey, put in there. 18 pound turkey was done in one hour. One hour. As a final activity, we try our hand at foraging pizza toppings from the weeds in the garden beds. Uh, this is uh, garlic. What did she call it? Wild, uh, I call it wild, wild garlic. Wild garlic. Onion she grass. calls it wild onion. Onion grass. It's called it. field garlic, actually. Field garlic, okay. But also known as onion grass. Amanda and Elizabeth want Piedmont Picnic Project to live up to its motto of knowing your roots and using them. And so we do that in a number of ways that try to build more food skills with people so they can have kind of more independence from that industrial food system, um, connect them more with their local food system, especially things that they can make, grow, or forage themselves. That story comes to us from producer Josephine McRobbie. See photos and more at eartheats.org. I'm Kate Young. This is Earth Eats. Still ahead, a story on women in farming and strategies for sustainable eating. Stay with us. Denise O'Brien and Kate Edwards' identities revolve around the American farm. They've both experienced the difficulties of farm life and draw inspiration from each other. Producer Cole Stenson brings us this piece from an interview provided by StoryCorps. All of the food we eat and much of the clothing we wear comes from plants and animals that are raised on farms. The small working farmer earns his living on the land. He works the soil to feed and clothe this country. I get a kick out of everything that grows out of the ground. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. At beautiful hilltop farm, Mr. Clark raises only purebred hogs. My first memory of you was when I was in college at Iowa State University, um, probably over a decade ago now. And you were running for Secretary of Ag of Iowa. 
And I um, was a young woman who was just enamored with that there was a woman farmer that could run for office. You were wearing a brown suit and it was hot. And I remember thinking that that would be hard to be going around and meeting people. And I remember shaking your hand and just being so, um, so amazed that, that someone could be running for office and be a farmer and be a woman. I think at that moment, I was like, I want to be Secretary of Ag someday. <laughs> my name is Kate Edwards, and I'm getting to talk to Denise, my friend. I didn't grow up in a farm, so when I met Larry and he said he wanted to be an organic farmer, I'd been living out of the state, and um, I came back for a a family wedding and met Larry at the local bar, and and he told me he was going to be an organic farmer. I learned to farm from him. I learned to drive a tractor. I learned to fix equipment. I learned about the language of farming, which really set me up for my life for the rest of my, the rest of my career, because it is a special language. Mm. Yeah, it's a different so, vocabulary. Yeah, the the two years that I sort of went through this apprenticeship then um, prepared me for what happened in the '80s, which was an unknown. Nothing. We didn't know that there was going to be a farm crisis. The farm crisis was the result of a confluence of many things. Failed policy, mountains of debt, land and commodity price booms and busts, and add two droughts, one in 1983 and the other in 1988. Farmers who were in the wrong place at the wrong time were crushed. The two of us made a decision together one afternoon that that we needed to do something because people were losing their farms. So we came to a mutual agreement that he would stay home and raise the kids and milk the cows. And I would do that when I was home, but I would also be on the road doing things. And so some of my first meetings were with our daughter, who was, um, was six months old, and I'd be sitting at the back of the room nursing her while you know we were doing meetings and learning again the language of, of what the farm crisis was about. I was born in 86, which is the year the farm crisis ended. Both my parents grew up on farms, and they um, didn't return to the farm because of the 80s. I grew up thinking, oh my gosh, I wish I'd grown up on a farm. And I remember from a very young age knowing that my grandparents almost lost their farm. And um, they didn't. And there's a lot of people that did. And then I remember hearing about the suicides and the murders. And um, even though it was... Even though I wasn't around for it, I feel like I was because I know the stories. You know, I know it affected the way our family looks at things, the way we look at money, the way we look at land, the way we look at um, work. So I, I grew up thinking, I want to I do something for farming. Um, but because of the kind of patriarchal nature of the agricultural influence, I didn't necessarily think I could be a farmer, but I knew that I wanted to advocate on behalf of farmers. And so I remember I was eight years old sitting at our kitchen table you know, the same kitchen table that was my great-grandfather's kitchen table that had the notch and the edge where the tobacco had been cut on the one side and sitting there thinking, I want to do something to change agriculture. What set me up for the rest of my life as a woman farmer and an organizer and, you know, a founder of a women's organization was that I found out that women didn't identify themselves as farmers. Oh, I know. My grandma still to this day calls herself a farm wife. and She she milked the cows. She... 
um, raise hogs on her own. She did all these things that do- doesn't count herself as a, as a farmer. And that's so, pre- even today, that's so prevalent in Iowa. Exactly. The women doing the work of the farm. Um, calling themselves farm wives, right? And 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 so people, as you said, that I stood up at this crowd and said I was a farmer, and I got used to that. I felt after the um, two years of apprenticeship with my husband that I could call myself a farmer. Did, did that shock people? Yes. Well, that's it. The people because I still to get me. shocked when people when people when I tell them I'm a farmer. Yeah. And they they still are like yeah. It's a know. long ways to go yet to to change that image of a male farmer. On the other end of the spectrum, young women would come up to me, and similar to your experience, and they'd and when I address a college audience or whatever, and they'd say, "Wow, you call yourself a farmer," and so yeah. you know that that really. Well, I really think you doing that and other women doing that really paved the way um, for women like me to just be able to do that. Be comfortable with yeah, that. Yeah, be comfortable with that. Yeah. Well, Kate, I think it's interesting that you're still experiencing that, that we haven't, you know, changed Well, I get that. called a gardener all the time. Gardener, and, and, yes. And I, I tell people that my um, one acre of vegetables is 400 times the size of a garden. And I have, right now I have, next year I'll have nine acres of vegetables. So, you know, that's almost 4,000 times the size of a garden. I'm not a gardener. I'm a farmer. <laughs> you are a farmer. We really didn't have role models. Um, you know, Larry and I didn't with our farm, with organic farming, nor did I as a woman farmer. We had to create that, and I think that's been very strong with me, is having to be this role model of, for women to know that they can do, you know, this sort of work. Being a woman farmer is, has its challenges in of itself. Learning to farm itself is a challenge, and learning to know what one's voice is in the larger conversation that's happening about agriculture is also a challenge. And so I feel so privileged as a young woman in farming to have kind of this, this symphony of mentors around me. This interview is provided by StoryCorps a national nonprofit whose mission is to preserve and share humanity's stories in order to build connections between people and create a more just and compassionate world. StoryCorps.org This recording is part of research led by the Indiana University Ostrom Workshop. Their study involves farm transitions from one generation to the next, in particular transitions between people who are not in the same family. This story was produced in a course at the IU Media School taught by Allison Quantz. Find more at eartheats.org. The recent climate report released from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, is alarming, to say the least. It appears that we're looking at 30 years of a warming planet, even if humans were to stop carbon emissions completely and globally today. Here at Earth Eats, we're concerned with the role of food production and consumption in global warming. It's well known that large-scale meat production contributes to climate change in a number of ways. And vegetarianism and veganism are on the rise, 
Unfortunately, so is meat consumption. And I feel certain that people won't stop eating meat anytime soon, no matter how dire the warnings become. So I think it's useful to look at ways that meat can be produced more sustainably and find ways to encourage a reduction in meat consumption. A few years ago, we had a show that looked at one of the ideas for reducing meat consumption in the U.S. It's called the Blended Burger Project, and its sponsors were the James Beard Foundation and the Mushroom Council. The idea behind the Blended Burger Project is to encourage chefs and others in the food world to make burgers using a blend of meat and mushrooms for a healthier, more sustainable burger that doesn't sacrifice on flavor. I spoke with two of the chefs in Indianapolis who participated in the project. Let's hear about it from them. It's a burger, and um, it's our secret bar burger. When we first opened seven years ago, we had a burger on the menu, but we were selling them like hand over fist, and I'm like, I don't want to be the burger place. Uh, check average-wise, and just the, the style of the restaurant. So we made, it a, uh, we made it a secret item in the bar only. And so the regulars know about it. It's not on the menu, and we sell... We sell a half dozen or so a night. I think that's always the best sort of way with restaurants is word of mouth, you know, and people I think enjoy telling someone about a secret that they have or telling someone about a place that they know or a place where they're regular. And uh, that's always, I think, the best kind of marketing there is. We bake the bun uh, in-house. It comes with caramelized onions and uh, aged white cheddar, a little bit of lettuce. And it's, uh, it's a hit. It's a two patty burger, four ounces each. And we serve it with our, uh, our fries, which are tossed in a bone marrow butter, and jalapenos. So it's, uh, it's pretty popular. Ryan Nelson, I'm the chef owner of Late Harvest Kitchen. We opened Late Harvest Kitchen in November of 2011. And uh, pretty much all of the, the beef and lamb and pork and rabbit and chicken and duck is uh, all sourced from Indiana Farms. Uh, we do our best with produce when we can, when weather allows. I guess you would label us as farm to table. We have a gorgeous patio. We have a wonderful herb garden on the patio. We have all of our own herbs. It's my wife and I's dream come true, this restaurant. We're uh, participating in the Blended Burger Project. Uh, we've done that the last couple of years. It's an initiative through the Mushroom Council and the James Beard Organization. And it's essentially just kind of calling attention to a few things. A, that mushrooms are nutritious and good for you. Uh, B, that it takes less resources to produce a burger like this than it does that's one that's all beef. Uh, to produce one pound of ground beef in this country, it, it takes uh, about 1,800 gallons of water. And I think a lot of people don't consider that when you're, I mean, that's a ton of water for like one pound of, one pound of beef. So we've got about, I would say the mushrooms represent maybe about 30% of a reduction of beef. Uh, and then lastly, or C, most important, um, it's delicious. Mushrooms and, and beef go great together. I think chefs have a position where they can lead. And we, we eat every day, and why not eat, eat a little better? You know, both in, in a manner that's healthy or in a manner that's better for, you know, the environment. And, you know, reducing our amount of, you know, beef that we're eating is probably a good thing. Chef Nelson's going to show us how he makes his secret bar burger. Here's our two patties. We've got some uh, shiitake mushrooms, some cremini mushrooms, uh, some portobello mushrooms. Um, we just saute it with a little bit of shallot and garlic, some herbs, a little butter. 
And they didn't look like they were finely chopped. No, it's pretty rustic, you know. Yeah. Pretty simple, salt and pepper, a little bit of oil to get it started. Toast our bun and heat up our onions as well. I love that your bun is made in house too. That's yeah, nice. Uh, Anna and Meredith make uh, sometimes it's up to nine different types of bread in a day. So fresh bread. Yeah. 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 My, nothing uh, ruins a good burger than a crappy bun. I agree, and also like I would say that the. The, the meat to bun ratio is probably one of the most important things of the burger. You can't have like too much meat, you can't have too much bun. So the double patty works well with our with our large bun. Those mushrooms sear up great too. It's the same uh, same preparation, just added mushrooms. Let's be. I'm gonna stick this in the oven for a couple minutes. Sorry, it's right behind you. And we've had a great response from our, obviously it's a, a, a burger that's enjoyed by our regulars and it's been 100% positive. Yeah. No pushback at all? None. None. I'm, honestly, I'm not sure people would even notice if you didn't say anything. Man, why is this a little bit better today? Yeah, our kitchen's pretty small. Yeah. Yeah. When we're all in here at night, we can like reach out and like <laughs> help everybody can touch each other. It's more efficient. It is. Everything has its place. Um, if something's not in its place, you, you, you notice it. I'm going to grab it. It's probably cl pretty close. Okay. Yep. okay, and then a bit of caramelized, caramelized onion. onions for some sweetness and depth of flavor. A little bit of lettuce. And then our, our remoulade sauce. Just kind of our secret sauce, if you will. Kind of brings it all together. We top it. And because it's such a large burger, throw a knife in the middle. That way it stays upright when it goes to the table. Yeah. <laughs> Voila. Beautiful. I think that's, that's a real American thing, too, is like sometimes you just want a burger. You know, like we're like, you know, quote unquote, like fancy or, or fine dining restaurant, but. Yeah. Burger, you know, everybody likes a burger. Yeah. Yeah. Especially at the bar, makes sense. Casual, fun, 100%. It's kind of a knife and fork sort of burger. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I love that. You, I, I'm tasting the mushroom. The mushrooms have that, that fifth flavor, the umami, yeah. and that works so awesome with beef. Um, it, they, the flavors just play off each other. It plays off the fat, plays off the salty. It just... There's a reason why we love burgers, because in a way, they're kind of a perfect like mix of flavors. Yeah. 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 That it only adds. It doesn't. You don't miss anything. Hundred percent. Yeah. It's yeah. it's enhancing the burger for sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's what I like about it. I really hate fake meat and the whole trying to replace something or make it seem like it's something it's not. And with this, it just feels like you're just making it better. I agree. Yeah. And we could probably add even more mushrooms to it, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, it's really nice. Thank you. Thanks for letting me try it. My pleasure. <laughs> that was Chef Ryan Nelson of Late Harvest Restaurant in Indianapolis. After a quick break, we'll speak with Abby Maris, another chef up in Indy, about her blended burger. So stay with us. I am chef and co-owner of Bluebeard um, Indianapolis. We do a lot of sustainable um, foods here. We do a lot of local produce. Um, try to source many different proteins and vegetables as locally as possible. Bluebeard opened in 2012 in the heart of the Fountain Square District in Indianapolis. Amelia's, their bakery, is connected to the restaurant but also has its own storefront next door. Chef Abby Maris participated in the Blended Burger Project in 2018. And just as a reminder, the Blended Burger is a mix of beef and mushroom. I'm very happy to be included in it. I think it actually makes a better burger than just a regular ground beef patty. You know, especially if you cook the mushrooms in a proper manner, you know, and blend them up uh, properly. And then, you know, you can build different ratios. It could be whatever uh, you want. But yeah, I, I definitely think that the 25-75 blended is pretty stellar. Um, but I also like the hard roast of the shiitake, so um, I do have to go through a good amount of mushrooms to get that. <laughs> so could you describe your your burger, the way that you're making it? So we're doing, like I just said, 75-25 beef to mushroom ratio. The ground beef is from um, Fisher Farms, which is located in Jasper, Indiana. And we get roughly, if we're not grinding our own meat from them, we are just sourcing their ground beef that they already have on hand. I do roast the shiitakes off, and then I pulverize them in the, um, in the mixer, or the uh, roboku, until they're pretty finely ground. And then I massage that into the ground beef patty, and I add a little bit of onion and garlic powder, some black pepper and salt. And then patty them out, and then I'm pan frying them so it gets a really nice uh, crust developing on the outside of the burger. Um, And then I put caramelized onions on top of that, and then some cheddar cheese, melt that down, and then the bun um, has like an herbed butter onto both sides of the bun. And then it's just a a bluebeard quote-unquote special sauce. And is your, does your bun come from the bakery? Yeah, so Amelia's, they're doing a, um, a brioche roll that has um, sesame seeds, so they do make it specially for us every day. Do you normally have burgers on your menu? Yeah, I mean, at lunchtime we typically have burgers, and then um, Sunday, we call it Sunday Fun Day is the menu, so we'll put like 
meatloaf sandwiches or burgers or tacos on. But yeah, there's always a burger on the menu somewhere. And currently it is on the menu for lunchtime only because it's been too successful. So we run out of the buns and the burger patties <laughs> by the time dinner service starts. So, How do you think that this blended burger project, especially if it became more widespread, could impact our food system in a positive way? It's hard to say. Hopefully it does work and hopefully it does pick up. I don't know why people aren't doing it more often with even out the title of the Blended Burger Project. I would love to even just make a, an all mushroom patty sometime. I mean, I'm, I'm not a vegetarian by any means. If you knew me, I probably eat a cheeseburger once a day. I just had one of the burgers this morning for breakfast, so <laughs> I'm very passionate about my burgers. But and it's a fun challenge for sure. I did recently try one of those Impossible Burgers, and it is kind of strange, like with the soy protein. But I mean, they're they're doing a good thing, obviously, and it is um, an interesting burger. What my response to the Impossible Burger is like, I'm, psychologically, I'm not sure I'm gonna like it. Like I didn't know soy was supposed to bleed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thank you so much for meeting with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been lovely to meet you. Thanks. Bluebeard is located in the Fountain Square District in Indianapolis. Their hours and menu may have changed since this segment first aired back in 2018, but they're still doing farm-to-table dining, and we have a link to their website at eartheats.org. One question that occurred to me doing this story is, what about the mushrooms? We first aired this story back when Alex Chambers worked on our show, and he did some research. It takes about 1.8 gallons of water to grow a pound of mushrooms. That's a tenth of a percent of what it takes for beef. And a pound of mushrooms only generates 0.7 pounds of greenhouse gases. For beef, it's over 6,000 pounds of gases. It takes a lot less land to produce mushrooms, and they can create their own nutrients from food waste. So, so the answer is yes, mushrooms are more sustainable than beef. A lot more sustainable. The Blended Burger Project continues today, though for the past two years, the Mushroom Council has partnered with Bon Appetit and the Food Network for the Blended Burger Contest Home Edition. In this version, home cooks compete for cash prizes with their blended burger recipes. Find out more at eartheats.org. First of this year, I ran a story from 2018 about a plant-eating challenge from Healthy IU. I was thinking of it as an inspiration for those of us who make plans to get healthy at the start of a new year. I found out this week that Indiana University is bringing back their plant-eating challenge this fall, and I couldn't resist airing this piece again. 
especially as we're talking about ways to reduce the amount of meat in our diets with the blended mushroom burger. The stories seem to pair well. Asparagus, bell pepper, cabbage, carrot, cauliflower, celery, green onion, lettuce, mushroom, Napa cabbage, hazelnut, peanut, sesame seeds, sunflower seeds. I'm Stephen Lalovich. I'm a registered dietitian for the IU Health Center and Healthy IU, which is the university workplace wellness program. Healthy IU serves all the IU campuses throughout the state, and we provide a variety of programs and services, all of which are free of charge to IU employees. Our most popular program is our health screening program, where you get your height, weight, blood pressure, um, and cholesterol and glucose measured. Um, We also offer one-on-one nutrition counseling. One of our best ways to engage employees is through um, various challenges that we do. We've done sleep challenge, weight loss challenge, stair climbing challenge, and our most recent one that we just completed was a nutrition challenge called Back to Our Roots. The Back to Our Roots Plant Eating Challenge was a three-week challenge, and it encouraged employees to increase the variety of different plants that they consumed. So this would include vegetables, fruits, grains, nuts and seeds, beans, herbs and spices. Each week, uh, participants tracked how many different plant foods they ate, and um, they set a goal each week and and tried to achieve their goal. Garlic, clove, nutmeg, oregano, pepper. I took the plant-eating challenge, and I kept a radio diary with my 12-year-old son, Cosmo. Hi, my name is Cosmo Pearson Young, and I go to Templeton Elementary. It has an online interface, a checklist of different plant foods. Put in the plants that you've eaten today, and then click Save and Continue. The first version of the challenge that I created was just a bunch of blank spaces, and I think that would not have gone as well as it did in its current format, where instead of just a bunch of blank spaces, it became more of a checklist and you'd click on things as you would eat them and it was counting those as you clicked. Click save and continue. So yeah, it was more interactive that way. It also helped to prompt you to to see those things that were maybe opportunities to eat. So then you could then click on them after you ate them. Click save and continue. Cumin, cardamom, cloves, nutmeg, apple, banana. I asked Stephen about the thinking behind the challenge. Why is it a good idea to have a variety of plant foods in your diet? One of the first times that I really considered doing a challenge like this was when I was preparing a presentation for employees about the gut microbiome and the the, the benefits of the um, bacteria that we have in our digestive tract. And one of the ways to promote a, a healthier digestive tract and to promote a greater diversity of bacterial species is to make sure that you're eating a diversity of different plant species. And also, there are many different nutrients and phytonutrients found in different plants, and it's, it's not something you can get from just one or two plants. And so by making sure you're including a variety, through that variety, there can be a lot of different uh, health benefits. That's really interesting to think about improving gut health through a variety of plants because what you mostly hear these days is you know eating probiotics, eating fermented foods, and hearing that all these different kinds of plants have these carry these different kinds of microorganisms that, that improve health. I guess it helps to distinguish between probiotics and prebiotics. 
So the probiotics would be those fermented foods or, or supplements that contain the actual live bacteria, um, whereas prebiotics are the food that the bacteria eat. And in the form of plant foods, this would primarily be fiber. So there are, there are different types of fiber found in different plants, and each different type of fiber feeds a different type of bacterial species. So, so to promote that diversity, Grape. it helps to make sure Grape that you're fruit. eating different plants. Lemon. Orange. Could you just tell us what phytonutrients are? What's the difference between a nutrient and a phytonutrient? So generally when we think of nutrients, we think of things like vitamins and minerals and fats, proteins, carbohydrates. Um, phytonutrients are other compounds that we find in plants. Um, so phyto meaning plant, plant nutrients. And um, there are different types of phytonutrients. I think there are thousands of different types. And, and these compounds have a lot of different health benefits associated with them. In particular, uh, many of them help to reduce inflammation in the body. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of chronic diseases have an inflammatory component. So by eating more plants, by eating more of those different colors, we can help to keep inflammation in check and, and maybe prevent a lot of those chronic diseases. I filled out the tracker with my son. And on the first day, I said I had some chutney. And there was peach in the chutney, but it wasn't a full serving of peach. I asked Cosmo what he thought about that. I think that you just have to eat the fruit raw because it's kind of like if you eat tortilla chips, then you kind of miss corn. That's kind of what it's like, but I don't think you should be able to do that. And so he was kind of surprised by that. He didn't think that any junk food should count. Yeah, we intentionally left the the rules of the challenge more open-ended so that people could interpret how they wanted to categorize things on a personal level because we're all coming from a different place in our lives you know some of us may want to focus more on strictly whole plant foods whereas others may be making a step in the right direction including some more of those processed plant foods that still might have some health benefits and as the weeks of the challenge went on, I found myself searching for new ways to add additional plants to the list. I was seeking out that variety instead of just sticking to my old favorites. And though I was the only one taking the challenge, the whole family was in on it. Carl came home with a pineapple one day, and he made a dish with farro with the intention of adding a new grain for the week. Garbanzo beans, kidney beans, lentils, peas, pinto beans. Chamomile, cinnamon, clove, ginger, mustard. The whole time it felt like a game. I was competing with myself somehow, and it never felt restrictive. What we wanted through the challenge was for people to have a mindset of more rather than less. Oftentimes when we think of eating or healthy eating, we think it means restricting but in the case of these plant foods, they provide a lot of health benefits. And by increasing the amount and eating more of them, we can reap a lot of those benefits. Tomato, coconut, peach. If you're connected with Indiana University, you can participate in the Plant Eating Challenge this fall from September 20th to October 11th. Find more at eartheats.org. Great job. You met your goal for week three. Your goal, 65 plants. You ate 69 plants. Congratulations. Thanks for your help. No problem. Cranberry. Pineapple.
plantain, strawberry, farro, oats, almond, and tangerine. One of the ways I push myself to eat more plants is by growing food at home in my yard. When the green beans come on, or the cucumbers, or the tomatoes, or the blackberries, sometimes all at the same time, I find ways to work them into meals, out of necessity. One food I have never had in abundance in my garden is eggplant. A few years ago, I consulted Candace Minster at the White Violet Center for Eco-Justice in Terre Haute. I knew she had great success with growing eggplant, and I wanted to hear some of her secrets. Oh, I remember coming out here a couple of years ago, and you had the most beautiful eggplant I'd ever seen. <laughs> Thank you. Eggplant are, you know, they're near and dear to my heart, and they're a misunderstood vegetable, I feel. Unfortunately, I think most people have encountered one too many just soggy, oily, horrible eggplant parmesan dishes, and so they therefore <laughs> are not interested. But if you know how to treat the eggplant with respect, you know how to cook it. It doesn't take too much, just a couple extra steps. It can be just so delicious. You don't have to convince me. I'm a huge fan of eggplant. Um, but I have not had success growing them. What is your secret? What, what do you think makes an eggplant happy? So they like to have consistent water. Most of our vegetable crops are on drip irrigation. And I make sure that they get a nice thorough soaking at least once a week. They usually will get a... Um, two waterings. And the heat is really helpful for them as well. I will grow them on plastic. If a lot of the organic mulches, I, mean, I love the organic mulches and we use them all throughout the field, but they will keep the soil temperature cooler. For the crops like the eggplant that really like the heat, they perform a little better with the warmth that the plastic can provide to them. And they need to have room so they, they can grow fairly close to each other, but you, you just have to be sure that they're not getting a lot of weed pressure because they, they don't handle the weed pressure real well. So if, the, if they don't get a good amount of light and air moving through, then they can become stunted. The other thing I do is I prune off the first fruit that form because they tend to not be as big or as healthy as if the plant gets a little more time to get established, okay. has a little more resources before they put up. Are they heavy feeders? Do they like a lot of fertilizer? They do. Yeah, they do. We treat all the fields with our compost each season. We use a variety of different cover crops that um, we will grow throughout the spring. And then we will also fertilize with, we use fish emulsion and um, some more general ones. Okay, so they like heat, 
So do you wait to plant them out till you're really sure it's going to be nice and warm for them? Yes. What's tricky is that flea beetles really like them. That's what the other thing I was going to say is how do you prevent the flea beetles? That's what seems to destroy most of the crops that I see. Yes. What I like to be able to do is to have a good aged plant going into the field. If the little guy, the little plant's old enough and mature enough, when the flea beetles emerge, they will generally get through it okay. So don't be alarmed if the leaves get pocked from the flea beetle as long as the plant is nice and sturdy and healthy. Yes, yes. So typically eight to 10 weeks is the age that that you would want them to go into the field from the greenhouse. However, I'd say the ones that we plant here tend to be more like 15 weeks along. So they're they're quite a bit older. That was Candace Minster at the White Violet Center for Eco-Justice at St. Mary of the Woods in Terre Haute, Indiana. She was sharing tips on growing eggplant, and that interview took place in 2018. We have several fabulous eggplant recipes on our website, including one for eggplant parmesan, which is the exact opposite of soggy and boring. It will surprise you. Check it out at eartheats.org. show this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblek, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week, Candace Minster, Brian Nelson, Abby Maris, Alex Chambers, Amanda Matson, Elizabeth Weichel, Cole Stinson, Denise O'Brien, Kate Edwards, Stephen Lalovich, and Cosmo Pearson-Young. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.